Bibles to the book of James, and we're going to start in chapter 1, verse 13. And right away, we are introduced to the first of many controversies that is going to come up in the book of James, although this is not really a controversy if you just allow context to speak. You know that I am a fool for context. Context, context, context. How many times have you heard that word? Three. Three. Exactly. Right. I keep saying if you just look at context, you can understand word usage. And the word tempt is going to come up in your King James Version. The newer versions are going to render it several different ways, but you're going to be introduced to the concept that God cannot be tempted with sin and that God does not tempt anyone. But if you're reading from the King James, you're going to go back to Genesis 22.1, and you're going to read, and it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham. So clearly God tempted Abraham, and then James says, God does not tempt anybody. So is this a conflict or is it not? This is why I keep saying, pay attention to the context. As early as the Geneva Bible, in fact, Genesis 22.1, was rendered as God did prove Abraham. And so the word that is being translated there, it's the Hebrew word Nisah, it's being translated within its context because God did not tempt Abraham to sin. Again, this story is about uh, God telling Abraham to kill his his only son that he has had with Sarah, the son of promise, through Isaac thy seed shall be called. Through Isaac your progeny is going to come. Now kill Isaac. Okay, well that wasn't tempting Abraham to sin. That was trying or proving Abraham to find out if his faith was firmly in God and if he would still obey God because it was the same God who miraculously gave Abraham and Sarah this child of promise. So he is the same God who was able to raise Isaac back up from the dead if need be. So Abraham said to his uh, servants, we're going to go to that mountain and worship the child and I, and then we'll be back, even though Abraham knew that he was going up there to sacrifice Isaac. So clearly God was not tempting Abraham to sin or rebel against himself. What he was doing was proving the metal of the faith of Abraham. Did Abraham actually believe 
in God's power and God's word and God's right to do whatever he wanted with what was his. And so James starts his epistle by saying, Consider it all joy, brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing or the trying of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That same idea, that same Greek word, paraizo, I think is the word, that same concept then is carried over when he introduces the idea of God being tempted with sin in verse 13 by saying, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. Because God cannot be tempted by evil and he himself does not tempt anyone. So let's break that down to brass tacks. It starts with God in his holiness, in his otherness. I think when we were teaching systematic theology, the week that we talked about the aseity of God, the separateness, the otherness of God, one of the things we identified about God that makes him completely separate and different from us is that he cannot be tempted by sin. He is righteous and holy. There is no sinfulness in him. Therefore, he cannot be tempted by sin. So James grabs that idea that God cannot be tempted with sin and then says, because he himself cannot be tempted, he cannot tempt others to sin. In other words, God is not a God who ever encouraged people to rebel against himself. I just jumped right in and just started digging deep, didn't I? It was like, no, hi, how are you? We just jumped right in. But the God of the Bible is, in fact, truly high, holy, and separate. And the fact that sin exists in the world and that he is absolutely sovereign causes some people to say, well, then how can sin exist in a world that is formed and made and ruled over by a completely righteous and good God? People use that as an argument against the Bible and against Christianity. And they say, well, you've got to explain the the existence of sinfulness and depravity and sin and disease. How does all of that occur in a universe that is made by a completely holy and righteous God? And that is why Satan exists. Because God's plan from the beginning has always been that in the end, his son is going to be glorified and have a name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus, every knee is going to bow, every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's God's plan. And in order to get us there, he has to have an agency within his creation that brings about the fallen state of mankind. So then God can actually be holy and righteous and good and just And not, for lack of a better term, not sully his own character or dirty his own hands with sinfulness. But he can accomplish sinfulness in his own universe to serve his own purposes. I have pointed out over and over and over and over again that if Satan was not serving God's purpose... At the very moment that Satan tempted Eve to sin, God would have immediately put Satan into the lake of fire. Because we know that's where he's going. You get to the book of Revelation and we know that's the end result of God finally judging and doing away with Satan. So why didn't he do it originally? As soon as he fell, as soon as Satan got raised up in pride and thought, I'm going to put my throne in the place of the north. I'm going to be worshipped like God. Why didn't God instantly place him into the abyss? He could have. He has the power. He has the ability. Why not? Because Satan serves God's purpose. And as long as he is serving God's purpose, he will be allowed to continue existing in God's universe. But at some point, new heavens, new earth, God's going to clean up his original creation when he has brought his church to himself, when he has established his kingdom on earth, when Satan is no longer necessary, Satan will no longer be. 
So God doesn't have to be sinful, nor does God have to be tempted with sin in order for God to bring about sinfulness in his universe. Does this make sense? Yes, sir. Did I make sense of that? Yes, sir. Because this is a subject people just debate endlessly. But to me, it seems pretty black and white. It seems pretty obvious. Yes, dear. What are the chances you're going to complicate things? Really high. Okay. <laughs> Does that mean that if God did not create sin, and yet the devil was able to sin, was that a power within the devil to create and sin at that moment? Or? Good question. Only somewhat complicated. Okay. 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 Yeah. The judgment of God, we see it several times in the Bible, the judgment of God is that he withholds himself from people. All God has to do to bring about a fallen state in his universe is withhold his own holiness. And downward results are bound to happen. All God had to do was allow Satan to fall, allow Satan to follow his natural egocentric proclivities the way he was designed, and he was going to fall. God knew that. So it wasn't a surprise to him. Okay. What? So sin was in his nature. Lucifer was able to naturally sin. And Any created being that God does not sustain, inhabit, and keep in his own holiness will automatically be less than God. And the extent of being less than God produces sinfulness. Perfect. I got a perfect out of you? I am so pleased. So, God does not have to be sinful. He only has to be a God who allows his creatures to fall by letting them be less than himself by withholding himself from them. We've seen it several times in the Old Testament where he did that to Israel. He just withheld himself. And in so doing, they fell into sin. So now I know we're talking about great big philosophical and theological concepts there. I know that these things are not spelled out in the Bible. You've got to read the Bible. You've got to know the character and the nature of God. You've got to get some sense of the God you're dealing with and then deal with the theology in the Bible and to some degree fill in the blanks. But that is my best explanation for why sin exists in a universe that is created by a righteous and holy God. Does this make sense so far? Yes. yes. Okay, good. Yes, ma'am. I hope this doesn't make it worse. Um, so far, it's not bad. It make it worse? Okay. Um, so why does he withhold himself? In order to bring about the fall of mankind so that mankind would need a savior. So that his son can get all the glory for being the savior of... So the ultimate goal... The ultimate goal is always the son's glory. Yes. And if there were not a people who needed a savior, there would be no glory for the son in saving people. And so God allowed within his universe that there would be a fallen creature that needed saving. So this is all ultimately the plan of God since the beginning. Before he made anything, his plan was to create a creation that would redound to the glory of his son. Well, let me play devil's advocate. The skeptics are going to say, so he puts people through all this pain and suffering and evil and horror and all that for his, just for his ego? I mean, that's going to be the argument. That will be the argument. And God answers the argument. That's actually in the Bible. God says, can I not do with my own whatever I want to do? Yeah. And in fact, David writes in the Psalms, the people are going to say, where is your God? And his answer is, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. So the very fact that he's God and he's on his throne and he's doing whatever he pleases, then the fallen creature has no right to put him on trial and say, why are you doing what you're doing? Isn't that what Paul writes? No one can stay his hand. No one can say, what doest thou? Or, or was that Daniel that said that? 
In Romans, Paul says. Why? That okay, then it's Daniel Landis, Paul. It's Daniel. <laughs> yeah, and Paul yeah. in Romans says, can the creature say to the one who formed it, why have you made me? Why have you made me like this? Sure. So fallen creatures simply don't have the right, despite our natural egocentricity, which is, we know, a characteristic of Satan, since we have that natural satanic proclivity toward our own ego, we want to justify ourselves before God. God does not allow that. He's sitting on his throne doing whatever he's pleased to do. So just because the critic might criticize the Bible, critics have been criticizing the Bible forever, but it doesn't change who God is, what he's like, or what he does. Never once did God go, oh, man, that didn't occur to me. Oh, that's hard? Oh, it's difficult for you people? Oh, I'm sorry. The question I get a lot is, how, can, how is that consistent, you know, with a loving God? How, is it, how does that make his character consistent? It makes it consistent by recognizing that his chief attribute is not love. If you define him as loving and only loving, then you have a problem. But if you define him as holy and preeminently holy... So that his love is a holy love, but his wrath is a holy wrath, then every characteristic and attribute of God flows from the fact that he's holy, therefore he can bring about this present result. Yes, ma'am. Can you say anything less than God is not holy? Is that what you said? Or anything less than God is sinful? Yes. Yes. Elect angels are kept by God. That's why they're referred to as elect angels. But there are also fallen angels. Fallen angels are sinful angels. So we can't say that the angelic creatures cannot sin. And God even used them in that one story where he said, Who will be my lying? Who will be a lying spirit for me? Yeah. He's talking to his elect angels. He's clearly yeah. speaking to the other sons of God. Yeah. And go, and go be a lying spirit in all the mouths of the prophets of Israel. Yeah. Or even in Paul writing to the Thessalonians, and Paul writing and saying that God will turn people over to a strong delusion so that they will believe a lie, so that they will be damned. I mean, that's a really, really sovereign God who can decide between the saved and the unsaved, and then cause the unsaved to remain in the unsaved state by bringing them that spirit, that delusion, that same idea that they're sufficient within themselves. But that's how a sovereign God works. Okay, we'll call all of that, including the questions, we're going to call that the introduction, collectively. Because here's what James does write in James, the first chapter, Starting at verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, that is the particular word in context that means tempted to sin, tempted to fall, tempted to rebel against God. Don't let anybody ever say, I'm being tempted by God. God is the source of the temptation that is causing me to fall. Let me give you a practical example. I knew a guy many, many years ago who was a raging alcoholic. When I confronted him about his alcoholism, he said to me, well, Jim, you're the guy who always talks about a sovereign God. If he doesn't want me to be an alcoholic, then I won't be. So he was blaming God for his own sinfulness as if God were the source and, and cause of his sinfulness. So James right here is saying, you can't do that. You can't get away with that. And his proof is there is no sinfulness in God. God cannot be tempted to sin. Satan never came up with a plan so perfect that he managed to get God to do his bidding and God sinning in the process. Now, Satan certainly is not beyond trying because Jesus was led by the Spirit of God into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil for 40 days and then he was tempted and the devil offered him everything he could offer, the kingdoms of this world. I'll give everything to you if you'll just bow down and worship me. Jesus 
who I think importantly was acting as our substitute, Jesus every time did not go for the temptation. Why? Because he's God incarnate and he cannot be tempted. He cannot be tempted with sin. You and me, we can be tempted with sin. Anybody here want to testify? You sinned in the last five minutes and you know you did. And this was the problem that Luther had to fight with so vehemently that he had even come to his abbot and said that even when he reached the point where he felt he was being relatively sinless, sleeping on stone floors, flagellating himself, climbing the ladder and palace on his knees, everything else he could do to be penitent for his sin, that even when he reached the point where he felt he had had a good afternoon with no sin in it, that that became a source of pride for him, which was sinful. So that no matter what he did, he was always inherently sinful. It was in his nature. It was in his character. He couldn't escape it. And so... Because we are constantly being tempted by sin, our substitute, our perfect Savior, made sure that he resisted Satan in all those temptations that we are daily tempted by. And he kept steering Satan's false theology back to the word of God. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He kept taking it back to God and his word, his sufficiency, and finally said, depart from me. Get away from me, Satan. So I am glad to know that even though I am constantly sinful, that my perfect righteous Savior cannot be tempted with sin... And if I am found in him and he is found in me, then I stand before God with his righteousness on me. And therefore, I'm considered not only sinless, but untempted. Well, it doesn't get better than that. Well, it doesn't get better than that. <laughs> oh, there you are. I, I wondered where you all had gone. And so James could argue from that standpoint don't let anybody say when they're tempted to sin, I am being tempted by God because God cannot be tempted by evil. And he himself does not tempt anyone. Then it gets even deeper. I have argued for years and years and years that not every sin and temptation that mankind falls into is necessarily a devil or a demon. There are people like the pastor we were with out in California who used to find a devil behind every bush. And he believed that if anything went wrong, that that was the devil somehow trying to get to him through his staff or through his people, whatever. The devil, the devil. Now, I believe and am completely convinced of the power of Satan, but I know I'm going to just pick on somebody randomly, I know Tom pretty well. And I know he doesn't need a devil to make him sin. <laughs> I know that sometimes he'll just do it. For sport. For sport. <laughs> because he's human. And who doesn't? The way we're made, the way we're manufactured, the way we're fallen, the proclivity of our mind and hearts is towards sinfulness. And if God does not constantly protect us and keep us and draw us, then we're going to fall inexorably into our sinfulness, naturally. And so James argues that sometimes it doesn't have to be God or the devil, your temptation is coming from you because of your wicked mind and heart. So he says, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. He didn't mention the devil in there. No demons in there. He says, here's where temptation comes from. 
temptation comes when a man is carried away by his own lust. Now, when we hear the word lust in the modern lexicon, we always think sexual lust. But he's talking about lust for chocolate. Can I get a witness? Yeah. (laughs) You didn't have to testify, but yeah. He's talking about lust for power. He's talking about lust for money. He's talking about lust for political gain. He's talking about wanting everything the world can offer you. If you lust after that stuff, then your natural proclivity is going to tempt you to be carried away from godliness and away from holiness and away from being your, if I can say this, your best version of yourself, which is a servant of God with your face in the dust, worshiping the God of ages, which is what you were manufactured for, you're going to go away from that and start thinking about me, me, more stuff for me, what more can I get? And when that kind of lust takes over, he says, that lust, having been conceived, then gives birth to sin. Okay, so kind of back to your first question. As soon as you start down that path of falling into a lack of God's holiness, you'll notice that James doesn't say you get better. He says you get worse. You keep tumbling downward. The further you get away from godliness, the further you get away from holiness, the further you get away from righteousness, you just keep tumbling downward. You don't wake up and go, oh, without God, I'm far better. I am doing great today without God. No, without God's constant hand on you, without his holiness preserving you, without his righteousness being imputed to you, all you're going to do is think about the lusts, think about the things you can accumulate to yourself, and that, says James, gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth lots of fun. Gangs and gangs of good times. Swinging parties. I don't know why I snapped my fingers at that point. (laughs) No, he says, sin brings forth death. And that's very consistent with Pauline writing. Paul says, the wages of sin is death. The payback for sin is death. So whether it's Paul, whether it's James, they agree that sinfulness brings about death. But where does that sinfulness come from? The sinfulness comes from unchecked lust. If you spend your whole life lusting after the things that you want to heap on your flesh so that you can make yourself grander in the eyes of other people, so that you never check your unlimited desire toward egocentricity, if you, if you live in that state, it can't bring about holiness. It can't bring about righteousness. All it can bring about is egocentricity, which results in sin. And the sin brings about death. And what is Christianity all about? Life. Eternal life. Jesus said, I came that you may have life and that you may have it more abundantly. He's all about life. The great contrast, one of the many great contrasts in the Bible, is that God made Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And there had never been among Adam, Eve, any of the animals, there had never been death. They don't don't know anything about death. So God says, the day you eat of that tree, you die. So in an environment of constant, unending life, God introduces the concept of death. And then once death has reigned on mankind, after the fall, when death is everywhere constantly, the Son of God comes to the planet and talks about life. That's a wonderful contrast. He talks about eternal life. He talks about abundant life. He talks about the kind of life that only God can give. So, I think in very simple terms, the lesson in this part of James is, 
You either are going to pursue the righteousness, the holiness, the goodness of God, or you're going to pursue all the things that you want to heap on your flesh. And in so doing, you're siding with death in this equation rather than life. Because you end up saying, I want all the things that produce death. That's not good. So let's read it as one big thought now and let's see if it makes sense. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. And when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. So what does come from God? If evil doesn't come from God, if temptation doesn't come from God, what does come from God? Well, that's verse 17, which is one of the best known verses in all of the book of James. But without its context, you don't understand that it's a contrast to everything James has already said. First, he has said, God is righteous, holy, good. God cannot be tempted with sin. God does not tempt anybody to sin. But then by way of contrast, he says, verse 17, every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. I think that's a follow-up on the fact that God cannot be tempted with sin. God is perfect in his holiness. God is perfect in his separateness, in his aseity. If he were to be tempted by sin, his character would change, and then there would be a shadow of changing. But because he's righteous, holy, and unchanging, James can write that there is no variation or even that shifting shadow of change. God remains constant. God remains perfect. God remains holy. And every good and perfect gift comes from him. Now, because that was kind of heavy, I think we need to spend a little time worshiping God. I think we need to do a bit of doxology. That's what I believe. Because that phrase, the father of lights, is not just clever poetry on James's part. He did not just make it up one day. I think I'll call God uh, the father of lights. And what lights is he talking about? Uh, does he mean the father of enlightenment? Or does he mean the father of the lights that actually light this world? Well, he's actually quoting that idea from Psalm 136. And in Psalm 136, we discover that God is indeed the creator of the sun, the moon, the stars, and all the lights in heaven. He is indeed the father of lights. So I started reading Psalm 136, and I thought, we need to read this. Now, growing up as I did in the Lutheran church, it was very common for us on Sundays to have short scripture readings that were call and response scripture readings. They were often found in the back of the hymnal, right? And so the pastor would read a verse, and then the congregation would read the next verse. And then the pastor would read a verse, and then everybody would read the next verse. Well, if you go look at Psalm 136, every other line says, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Now, your translations may be slightly different. But we're going to go with the NASB so that you can all say the same words at the same time. For his loving kindness is everlasting. Stand up, Steve. <laughs> yes, sir. Steve is going to lead the response. Follow Steve with the response. Because now we're going to read the whole of Psalm 136, which is a grand doxology to God. 
a grand praise of the glory of God. And after every line that I say, you're all going to say, for his loving kindness is everlasting. And if by the time we get through all 26 verses, you've started saying, and his loving kindness is everlasting, (laughs) then you don't know the God I'm talking about. You should say this with gusto all 26 times. Because God is listening. You know, throughout the Old Testament... There are episodes where Israel shouts to God. And it's part of their praise. It's part of their worship. It's a call to God. It's a shouting to God. And I think sometimes in the modern, especially Reformed church, we've become much too casual about God. And we have forgotten to shout to God. And we have forgotten to raise our hands to God. We have forgotten to call out to God because we're fearful that somebody watching will say, that's Pentecostal. And so we don't want to be called that, so we don't do that. We're going to do that. We're going to call to God about his righteousness, his loving kindness, and how everlasting, unchanging, no variableness, no shadow of turning. And after you've said it 26 times that his loving kindness is everlasting, I hope when you leave here today, that thought is planted in your head, that his loving kindness is everlasting. He does not change. And if he ever loved you, he's always loved you. If he changed his mind and said, oh, Now I love Leon. He changed. If he ever says, oh, I didn't expect Jeff to do that. I don't like Jeff as much now. He changed. But the loving kindness of God is eternal and everlasting. It has no variableness. It has no shadow of turning. Therefore, his loving kindness never changes. And you're going to say it 26 times. Now, when I brought this up yesterday that I thought we would do a doxology, it was suggested to me that we stand up because we're talking about our God. Get on your feet. Let's praise our God. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his loving kindness is everlasting. Give thanks to the God of gods. For his loving kindness is everlasting. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. For his loving kindness is everlasting. To him who alone does great wonders. For his loving kindness is everlasting. To him who made the heavens with skill. For his loving kindness is everlasting. To him who spread out the earth above the waters. For his loving kindness is everlasting. To him who made the great lights. For his loving kindness is everlasting. The sun to rule by day. For his loving kindness is everlasting. The moon and stars to rule by night. For his loving kindness is everlasting. To him who smote the Egyptians in their firstborn. For his loving kindness is everlasting. And brought Israel out from their midst. For his loving kindness is everlasting. With a strong hand and an outstretched arm. For his loving kindness is everlasting. To him who divided the Red Sea asunder. For his loving kindness is everlasting. And made Israel pass through the midst of it. For his loving kindness is everlasting. But he overthrew Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea. For his loving kindness is everlasting. To him who led his people through the wilderness. For his loving kindness is everlasting. To him who smote great kings. For his loving kindness is everlasting. And slew mighty kings. For his loving kindness is everlasting. Sihon, king of the Amorites. For his loving kindness is everlasting. And Og, king of Bashan. For his loving kindness is everlasting. And gave their land as a heritage. For his loving kindness is everlasting. Even a heritage to Israel his servant. 
who remembered us in our lowest state for his loving kindness is everlasting and has rescued us from our adversaries for his loving kindness is everlasting who gives food to all flesh for his loving kindness is everlasting give thanks to the God of heaven for his loving kindness is everlasting Amen Amen, Amen. There's an awful lot of people being killed yes. to which the response is his loving kindness. His loving kindness is everlasting. Doesn't that just tell you about the sovereignty of God? God deserves that kind of worship. God deserves that kind of praise. God deserves that kind of corporate announcement of the goodness of God and the loving kindness of God. And I just hope and I pray I'm constantly assessing GCA and how we do what we do. And I just hope that in the midst of all this theology and in the midst of all this head knowledge and all this time that we spend dissecting the word, that you don't ever forget to worship that God. If all you come away with from this place is, wow, we're smart, then I haven't done my job. You should come away from here saying, what a great God we serve. And you should be inspired to get on your face in front of that God and pray to that God and worship that God. And every once in a while, just break out in praise to that God. Sing to that God. Be happy in that God. Find your refuge in that God. Recognize that without that God, you would tumble into your own sinfulness but that he keeps you, he preserves you, he takes you through this life because his everlasting kindness is everlasting. His loving kindness is everlasting. And once you know that, you can fall asleep comfortably knowing that the God of Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. He's got it. He's got it all handled. And you can wake up in the morning and say, good morning, God, I'm glad you're here. Because he is constantly, constantly looking out for you. And you really ought to praise that God. So, back to the book of James. Every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from... Now do you see where that phrase comes from? Coming down from the Father of Lights. Because he is the God, according to Psalm 136, who created the sun for light by day, the moon and the stars for light by night. James picks up that idea, that language, and identifies God as the one who created the universe. When you walk outside and look up and see the stars and see the heavens and see the sun, know that that's evidence of God. That's what Paul argues in the book of Romans. That the entirety of the universe, the entirety of the creation, speaks loudly to the creator. That the creator must exist or there wouldn't be a creation. And so James refers to him as the father, the creator of all the lights that we have in the world. Had he not created those lights, we'd all be walking around in the dark, bumping into each other. And nobody, I promise you, would have a tan. Okay. <laughs> Just wanted to bring you back. Just wanted to make sure you were still with me. I'm going to keep you here a few more minutes because now we have to talk a little bit about the concept of first fruits because James is now going to say in the exercise of his will, God's will, he, God, brought us forth by the word of truth. So not only is that a verse that emphasizes the word of God, which I keep emphasizing over and over and over again, that the word of God is vitally important to our Christian growth and understanding of who God is as he reveals himself to us, back to the word, back to the word. But he, in the exercise of his own will, says James. So whose will counts? His will. That's why he's in the heavens doing whatever pleases him. Because his will is the only will that counts. Have you in this lifetime, I know I have, have you in this lifetime ever said, I desire to do this, I will to go do this? 
and then not been able to accomplish it because God had something else for you in mind? Yeah, because his will supersedes your will. No matter how firm and how determined your will is, your will is nothing compared to the will of God, which is why I keep saying human beings simply do not have libertarian free will. People have limited choice within the parameters that God allows them to live. So, by the exercise of his will, he brought us forth. So why did we come forward? Why did we enter into the presence of God, the knowledge of God, the word of God? Why are we in Christ and he's in us? Why did that happen? Because God, by the exercise of his own will, did it. We didn't do it. What'd you do, Luann? Sin. That's about all you bring to the party. That's about it. Here, I've got my filthy rags. I brought you this. What did he do? He decided since before the foundation of the world to bring Luann forth. And that was the exercise of his will. And what was the modus operandi by which he did it? His word. He uses his word in order to bring forth the people he has chosen to himself. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we might be, as it were, the first fruits among his creation. Okay, so you go back in the Old Testament and you find this concept of first fruits. When God brought Israel out of Egypt, God declared that the firstborn of every family and of every animal and of every flock, the firstborn belonged to God. And then later, he modified that deal with Israel and said, rather than taking the firstborn of every family, I'm just going to take a whole tribe to myself. And he took the Levites. And the Levites from that point forward didn't get any land in the promised land and they had to spend their lives in the service to God. And all of the other tribes had to support the Levites. God was always declaring that the first was his because he's the one who provides everything. So first fruits then became a feast within Israel where when they came into the land, the first of everything belonged to God. The Greek word for first fruits is aparche. That arche, you hear that in there? It's, it's the same place we get archangel. It's the same word that moved into English as archetype. So the concept of first fruits derives from God's very creation because God created everything that exists. All creation belongs to him. And consequently, that which is first and best belongs to him and is to be given to him. Because of God's creative power and ownership of everything, the Bible instructs believers to give God the best of the animal sacrifices. You can see that in Leviticus 1 through 5. The first five verses of Leviticus plainly say that you can't bring God any spotted or sickly animals. You have to bring them the best of your animals. And then you have to destroy the best of your animals for God's glory as burnt offerings. Because it is God who provided the animals. And you know, if your economy is all based on having animals... Well, then you need a good animal that can produce more animals. Am I circumlocuting that okay? Yeah, if you've got a good, healthy animal, you want more good, healthy animals. You want the good, healthy animal to procreate. God says, no, the best of your animals belong to me and have to be burned for my glory. I'll provide for you so that people don't start thinking, well, I'm getting rich and doing well because my animals are really healthy and I feed them well and I... I exercise them every day. I don't know. <laughs> the land is also viewed as a gift from God. And so the best of the land, the first fruits, all came to God. And God was real specific about it. He said the best of the crops had to come to him. You'll read that in Exodus 23.16 or Exodus 23.19. 
He said the first of the wheat harvest came to him, Exodus 34.22 or Leviticus 2.14. The best and the first of the olive oil came to him, says Numbers 18.12 and Deuteronomy 18.4. The finest of the new wine. So even when the grapes came in and you stomped them out and you made wine, the new wine went to God. You, you read that in Numbers 18.12. The first of the honey. That's how specific God was. The first of the honey, according to 2 Chronicles 31.5, belonged to God. The first of the sheep wool. When you were shearing your sheep, the first of the wool belonged to God. And the first of all fruits, Nehemiah 10.35 makes that plain, that the first of all fruits belongs to God. So the Old Testament makes it clear that everything that God's people have is to be viewed as from God and gained through his goodness, and therefore you were to take the first of it to God. If you did that, that was a sign that God was going to provide for you in an abundant harvest. So first fruit also began speaking of harvest to come. Okay, so that's all Old Testament. We just swept right through that with 70 league boots here. So that's all Old Testament. And then the New Testament writers come along and start thinking, because they're all Jewish, they start thinking in terms of first fruits. And they start applying the idea of first fruits to the fact that God is saving people. And the first people God is saving and bringing to himself are then referred to as first fruits. Paul even refers to Jesus as the first fruit of the resurrection. And if Jesus is the first fruit of the resurrection, that guarantees an abundant harvest. It's one of the reasons that I keep saying, if he got up, you're getting up. Because he got up as the first fruit of the harvest to come. Let's look at some verses real quick. Uh, Tom, look up Jeremiah 2.3. That's the only Old Testament verse we're going to look at. But there Israel is referred to as first fruits. Who wants to read? Who's in a reading mood? She is. 1 Corinthians 15.23. 1 Corinthians 15.23. Steve, you want to read something? Sure. 1 Corinthians 16.15. Jim, you want to read something? Sure. Romans 8.23. Who else wants to read? read? You want to read something? Revelation 14.4. <laughs> In true Jimmy Durante style, I got a million of them. <laughs> oh, I'm so glad that a couple of you remembered that. These are all... With the exception of the Jeremiah verse, these are all verses that make direct reference to first fruits. And you'll notice the ways that the New Testament authors applied it to various different groups of people. But the theme across the board is because in the first century church, God was beginning to save people, they were then designated as the first fruits, the first fruit of the church which also then speaks of an abundant harvest within the church, the first fruit of the resurrection, the first fruit of salvation. You're going to see all of that in these verses. Let's start at Jeremiah 2.3. Tom's going to stand up and read nice and loud so that you can all hear it. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first of his harvest. All who ate of it became guilty. Evil came upon them, declares the Lord. So Jeremiah even went so far as to say that Israel as a nation being chosen by God was a first fruit of all the nations. So the first of his harvest was Israel. 1 Corinthians 15.23, is that you, Meg? Stand up and read loud. My verse begins with a but, so I'm going to back up the verse. Okay. Because you taught me well. <laughs> For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the first fruits, afterward those who are Christ at his coming. Okay, so there's Christ as the first fruit of the resurrection to come. First Corinthians sixteen fifteen says what, Steve? Well, I will say that this is one of those rare times where the ESV translation gets it wrong. It says, now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts, but the word is still a parking, or first fruits, in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. 
So now Paul's talking about a particular church in a particular region, and he says the very fact that that church came into being, they are the first fruits of the church in that region. Speaking again of a, of a harvest to come of churches all over the world, but here's the earliest and the first fruits of that church. Romans 8.23, who did I give that to, Jim, if you would? And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, And so Paul refers to the first people who received the Holy Spirit as it being the first fruits of the Spirit. Now, I don't have time to go on in this a lot, but the promise of the Holy Spirit was very, very vital to the first century Jews. They understood, and Jesus repeatedly said, that he had to go away and then the spirit was going to come and he was going to be with you and he was going to be in you and that constant promise of the spirit of God that you find all the way back in the creation story in Genesis the fact that the spirit of God would inhabit people was a constant promise and then Jesus announced that by his own birth death and resurrection he was going to bring about that promised spirit and so when the spirit came to the early church that was the first fruit of the spirit so do you see the various ways that this word is being used not only by saying this belongs to God and therefore it is the first fruit of these God-given gifts but it also speaks of a harvest to come in the church by the spirit the resurrection all of those things are part of the first of God Revelation 14.4, stand up and read it. Revelation 14.4 says, these are, these are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they remained virgins. They follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They were purchased from among mankind and offered as first fruits to God and the Lamb. Okay, this is speaking of the 144,000, so it's really interesting. Because now this is the first fruit of the future redemption of the nation of Israel. And so they're referred to, having been chosen out, having been marked by God, they're referred to as the first fruit because they are future yet the first fruit of the redemption and restoration of the coming kingdom of Israel. So all of those prophetic promises all the way through the Old Testament of Israel's coming kingdom, the 144,000 constitute the first fruit of all those promises. So this idea, this concept of first fruit just keeps coming up and coming up and coming up again because God was teaching it for 1,400 years through the Old Testament and then the New Testament authors pick it up and say this is something that is happening now. God is giving us gifts that are constituting the very first fruit of the spirit, of the resurrection, of the church, of the kingdom to come. All those things are represented as first fruits now, but they speak to an abundant harvest to come in all those categories. Isn't that great? Yeah, it's just grand. All right, so back to James. Every good thing bestowed... And every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we might be, as it were, the firstfruits among his creation. Now this you know, my beloved brethren, but let everyone be quick to hear, Slow to speak and slow to anger. Let me just talk about this for one second and we're done for the morning. Because this is another example of how James draws from the wisdom literature. I keep saying it and I think we saw a good example of it last week, the way he was drawing from Ecclesiastes. Let me just read you some quick passages from 
the Proverbs and then even a little bit of Ecclesiastes. And I think you'll see where James is getting that idea. And then we'll close our Bibles for this morning right there on that verse. And next week we will pick up, therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness in humility receive the word implanted. We'll start there next week. But for right now, I want to talk about this you know, my beloved brethren, but let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. And the reason that I wanted to include that is because we've just been talking about the unvariableness, the unchangeability of God, that he is righteous and holy and nothing about him ever changes. And so you have to recognize that the perfect righteousness of God is not served by anger. They are at opposition with each other. But he gets that from the wisdom literature. For instance, Proverbs 10 17 to 21, he is on the path of life who heeds instruction, but he who ignores reproof goes astray. He who conceals hatred has lying lips, and he who spreads slander is a fool. When there are many words, transgression is unavoidable, but he who restrains his lips is wise. The tongue of the righteous is as choice silver. The heart of the wicked is worth little. The lips of the righteous feed many, but fools die for lack of understanding. Proverbs 17, 27 and 28 says, He who restrains his words has knowledge, and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. Even a fool, when he keeps silent, is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is considered prudent. Isn't that just good advice? <laughs> that, that basically says, shut up and let people think you're smart. That, that's just much, much better than opening your mouth and convincing them you're a fool. I've heard that quote somewhere. Yeah, thank you. It's that's, not those exact words. But yeah. Oh, yeah. Better to be thought of fool. Better to be, be silent and be thought of fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. Yeah, and... <laughs> And who was that? Was that Lincoln? 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 I was thinking Winston Churchill. So. Proverbs 16.32. He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And he who rules his spirit better than he who captures a city. And then, of course, you know the next verse. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. We quote. 33 all the time but proverbs 16:32 is just as good and just as valid he who is slow to anger is better than the mighty one last verse coming from ecclesiastes 7 8 and 9 it says the end of a matter is better than its beginning patience of spirit is better than haughtiness of spirit do not be eager in your heart to be angry for anger resides in the bosom of fools can you see now why James would say, let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. I personally think, even on a theological, psychological level, that being angry all the time, because listen to me, young guys, I know what I'm talking about here. I was the quintessential angry young man. And it never did me any good. I never accomplished anything in my anger. All I did was drive people away. All I did was make people not want to hear me anymore or, or be around me anymore. And for the most part, people just assumed that I was some kind of fool because I was just so wrapped up in my constant anger over everything. So anger doesn't work and... Anger doesn't hurt the people you're angry at. It hurts you. You're the one that stores up all that anger. You're the one fuming all the time. You're the one stamping your feet. The people you're angry at are at a party somewhere, having a good meal. They're fine. And you're walking around going, oh, I'm going to show them. All you're doing is hurting yourself. So from a life coach perspective, Give up on the anger. That doesn't do you any good. And the Bible says, 
that if in fact you are following after the righteousness of God, then anger cannot achieve that level of righteousness, cannot follow after that kind of righteousness. You need to clean up your anger. And if you recognize that God is sovereign and God's in charge of everything, well, then you're going to realize that there just isn't much to be angry about. Make sense? Yes. I've had several conversations over the years with Jennifer on the phone. And I'll be frustrated about something. Anything. It can be anything. Who was in the building and changed the air conditioning? You know, it can be anything. And she'll say to me to end the conversation, well, God's sovereign. (laughs) And she's right. We, We had a fellow here at GCA one time who made me crazy. I got really angry about it. But somebody said to me, God is sovereign. He knows what he's doing. This is happening on purpose. And the end result was we got better as a church. So there was no reason to be angry. God knows what he's doing. God brings things into your life on purpose. He's sitting on his throne doing whatever pleases him. And he's too loving, kind to do things that are to your detriment. He's doing things that instruct you, that grow you, that build up your faith. And that's the reason that he's bringing these things into your life. If you remember that, you don't get angry at him. Make sense? sense. All right. Any questions I I am sort of afraid to ask, but Micah's not here, so I can ask it. (laughs) Any questions about all that? Do you enjoy that? Do you enjoy the doxology? Did you like praising God? We should do more of that. Well, one person agrees. I'm starting a cult. It's going to be a loose-knit cult. We're going to wear loose knits. That's our plan. (laughs) I I amused one person. Say goodbye to the Internet congregation. Okay, you three Texans, say goodbye to yourself. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.